So Money episode 1138, the best of so money, all things real estate, buying, selling, investing. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. Hope you're having a good holiday week. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. All week, we're airing the best of 2020, the most popular, most talked about episodes of the year. On Monday, I shared three of my favorite conversations. Can you guess which ones they were? You'll have to go back and listen. Well, today we're focusing on one of my favorite topics, and I think yours, real estate. 2020 was a year when many of us experienced a change of address, including yours truly or maybe we considered it, between needing a different place to live in the pandemic, as well as low, low interest rates, 2020 was somewhat of a buying frenzy and many homes selling for well over asking here in Montclair, where I live. It's not, it was not unusual for a home to sell for 50% above asking hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars over ask. We had a few guests stop by the podcast this year with their insights. First was Elise Klink. She's an award-winning nationally syndicated columnist, blogger, author, radio talk show host, TV reporter, and she owns Think Clink Media. She's been a friend for over a decade. And we discussed candidly how the pandemic was impacting real estate, whether or not it was a smart time to buy, to sell, to rent, and what housing trends did she see were going to be coming normal in the wake of COVID-19. Here's some of our conversation that was held back in May, which was the heart of the spring selling market. People have been writing in, Farnoosh, should I buy a home? Should I sell my home? Should I just plan on renting for the next few years? There's a lot of questions circulating on the real estate front. And you are the expert when it comes to real estate as well as personal finance. But real estate is really your niche and wanted to bring you on to give us some guidance. I know you've written about this a lot recently. Things are changing by the hour. So gut check with you right now. If someone pre-pandemic was thinking of buying a home, should they change their plans right now? Well, that depends on whether you're one of the millions of people who has either lost a job, uh, taken a pay cut, or now is furloughed. So if that's you, uh, you're in good company. There's 26 to 30 million of you out there right now, depending on when you actually get this podcast up. I don't think the, unfortunately, I don't think we're done seeing the unemployment numbers grow. And as of the end of April, we were somewhere around 27 million people had lost their jobs um, or been furloughed, and then millions more have taken pay cuts. The problem with that is it derails all sorts of plans. And so the corollary is when you look at what's happening in the real estate market, and right now we're in the heart of the spring market. This should be the time when everybody is buying and shopping and listing and doing all these real estate things. But according to the latest numbers from the realtor from realtor.com and also the National Association of Realtors, it looks like the number of listings on market has fallen by about 42% over where it would have been last year. And the number of sales are down correspondingly and it's looking like prices are holding up, so it's not like you're going to get a great deal and you may not have that much to choose from if you actually are buying. So it's a very strange market. 
It is very strange. And, and it begs the question, how much longer uh, are we going to see real estate sort of flatten? Right? Like it sounds like it's just really flat right now. Not much going on. Do you think it's going to get worse before it gets better? I do think it's going to stop maybe where it is now, which is at a very, very depressed level. Um, and then I think it's going to start to slowly go up. The question is, you know, are we in the, have we flattened the curve <laughs> just like we have with COVID, mm -hmm. but, but it doesn't seem to be on the downside of the curve yet with COVID. And I think until we're all feeling much more comfortable about where COVID is, I don't see real estate um, taking back up in any sort of meaningful way. It would take something rather extraordinary for hap to happen for that to be the case rather than, you know, unless it's not tied somehow to COVID. I also think there's some issues going on regionally. Uh, some of these in the South, particularly in Houston, related to the oil crash. So in addition to this health pandemic, that we're now seeing the effects of this insane oil craziness where, you know, the price of a barrel of oil was negative, like seriously negative right before the May contracts came up. Um, now it's running at about, I'd look today again, end of April. Um, and it was like 12, 13 bucks a barrel. I mean, that's just, that's causing a, a huge amount of pain and over 300,000 people in Houston and the Houston area alone have lost their jobs because of this. So, there's some regional issues going on, not just that, there's others too, but like in Las Vegas, you've got what's going on with the hospitality industry and all of the hotels and conferences being closed and canceled basically through the fall. And that's causing an issue just in Las Vegas. I mean, everywhere it's, is feeling that, but in Las Vegas, particularly. One of the trends we're also seeing is people leaving dense cities. I, I'm in New York right now, Brooklyn, and there was a lot of my friends left right before the shelter in place orders. Uh, and they may not come back for many more months. And many of them are contemplating just leaving the city because it's not really making a case for itself as the place you want to be when there's a health crisis. And I'm just curious if you're noticing or if you think there's going to be an uptick in suburban migration, especially now if so many more people are going to be working from home, does it really matter where you live? And is that good news for some parts of the country that may have been a little quieter, maybe seeing more buying activity? And is that bad news for cities like New York? Well, people are buying in New York and never moving in. So there, you've got tall, beautiful, brand new buildings that are all sold out that nobody lives in apparently. Um, so I, I don't know uh, that money. Well, that's foreign money mostly. And I think that's drying up uh, or that has at least started to dry up. I mean, we sold in New York in February and we thought it couldn't get worse. In hindsight, we're so happy we closed when we did. But the market in New York for a while now has been a, a buyer's market. And um, yeah. a lot of money's been drying up here. Well, what's interesting about this move to the suburbs is you kind of see this go in waves. And, you know, 30, 25 years ago, I left downtown Chicago, and my husband and I headed up to the North Shore to a, a, ch a charming little town called Glencoe. And, um, you know, we've been happily ensconced here now, 25 years, raised our kids here, and we're starting to see the next generation come out with their little kids wandering around. But there was a period of time over the last, you know, 10 years where 
Um, the North Shore of Chicago did not recover the way that all others did in terms of pricing. Uh, pricing was, we lost about 30% of value in 2009, 10, 11, and 12. And you didn't see home prices come back and zoom ahead like they did almost in every other major metropolitan area. You know, you would see people um, around the country, you know, millennials, and they would say, no, we want to live in the city. We want to walk to work. We want to bike to work. We want a multicultural, diverse experience. We want to take advantage of all these great restaurants. And now what you're seeing is that those millennials whose kids are really the age of school age, you know, now they're thinking, well, maybe it would be good to go to the suburbs. So that movement was already starting to happen. And I think you're really seeing um, a change in perspective now, because while the city may have the best hospitals, you can walk around in the suburbs and not be on top of people. And I think that there's a new value being placed on having personal space or space for your family, a backyard, right? And and you're seeing that everywhere. That's why we're out of here. I mean, we've always had the plan to leave the city this spring slash summer, the pandemic and being crammed in our apartment with two kids and not really an outlet for uh, stretching our legs definitely spurred our plans to move. And we, we got lucky, really lucky because we found an, a house in New Jersey and it, it checked off a lot of boxes and we are now moving. Um, but I think, you know, that you're absolutely right. There is a shift in desirability, like what people actually want out of where they live. Um, not so much tied to where your job is perhaps anymore, but rather what is that house and where is that house? And does it have a yard? I was hearing from a listener who lives in Spain, the Spanish are a little bit further along with COVID and hopefully, you know, seeing more of a flattening of the curve, but she said she suspects that there's going to be more investment in homes, whether that's, you know, adding an addition to the home, more landscaping, because if we're going to be if this is our future, at least at least for the next few years, where every six months we have to shelter in place. I mean, doesn't that bode well, perhaps for interior designers? It does. But again, you know, what is our unemployment um, picture going to look like over the next two years. You know, I'm starting to see economists that I trust, and I think trust is a really big factor in this whole pandemic, but economists that I trust, that I follow, are now starting to talk about 2022 and 2023. When you have a 20-25% unemployment rate, and you've got the real sort of the, the quotable rate, which right now everybody's expecting to be somewhere around 16, 17%. And then you have the U6, which is sort of the total look at unemployment. And that could be easily in the mid 20 to upper 20% by the time we top out here. You know, that takes a while to reabsorb into the economy. And it's, and so going back to your point about real estate, I think there's been some changes this time with how the government has forced private industry and business to deal with homeowners and soon to be, I think, renters and how they're trying to preserve consumer wealth this time, whereas 10, 12 years ago, uh, basically it got destroyed and all these people who have lost their jobs would by now be in foreclosure. So we're seeing the foreclosure and the delinquency numbers rise a little bit. But what we're really seeing is that this forbearance option that was laid out in the CARES Act and is starting to be better understood as the weeks are going on, maybe saving the day by allowing homeowners to put their mortgages into forbearance for up to 12 months with no negative hit on their credit scores and allow themselves time to find a new job and not have to worry about losing their house. That was Elise Glink. And again, this conversation aired in May 
of 2020, where we were just a few months into the pandemic. I think right now in December, if you were to examine the real estate market, you would see probably some cooling of prices in areas, especially where prices spiked in the spring and in the summer. But part of that, you know, is potentially just seasonal. Fewer people looking to move in the winter, fewer listings. So therefore not going to be as much activity, not going to be as many high prices. If I were to weigh in on this real estate, state conversation, I would say the following. If you have the goal to buy a home in 2021, you want to be prepared to make two decisions. One is a financial decision, which is, can I afford this? Right? Well, the monthly payments for this home, including my mortgage, my taxes, maintenance, repairs, insurance, is that achievable? Will that be achievable after the down payment, after the closing costs? And will it be achievable even if I lose my job because I have done the good work of having savings? If the answer is yes, then I think financially you're in a good place. The other decision is a life decision. Do I really want to be a homeowner? And I say this because so often when I get questions on Ask Farnoosh or I'm talking to folks in real life about buying a home, it feels like They want to do it partly at least because it's the quote unquote adult thing to do. It is the next natural step in your adult journey. You went to college, you got the job, you got engaged, you maybe are having a kid now and you're like, okay, I'm not really an adult yet unless I have a mortgage. And that's not really the right mindset, right? You want to do this because it will improve your life. It will improve the quality of your life. It won't make your mother prouder of you necessarily. And if it does, it's just icing on the cake, but that's not why you're doing it. And the other question along those lines is if this is something that's important to you personally, do you need to do this right away? Can you wait? Renting until maybe you're ready to buy is a fine move. We did it a couple of times because renting, it buys you flexibility. It buys you time. It buys you also that chance to keep your money liquid. If you're in a job right now in an industry that is vulnerable because of what's happening in the world, is this really the quote unquote best or right time to buy a home? It's never the best or right time. You know, there are, but there are righter times. (laughs) There are better times, maybe not best, but there are better times. I think better when you have job stability, because here's the thing in March, when we were applying for a mortgage, my husband, fortunately, had a job, continued to have a job. I fortunately continued to have income, not as much as that time, 2019, but enough where I could present an application for a mortgage. And yet the bank was extremely critical of me, especially because of you know, the fact that I don't have an employer other than myself. Um, and so up until the closing day, the day before closing, my accountant got a call from the bank, the lender, to make sure that my business was still solvent, that I wasn't about to head for bankruptcy and had been shielding this from the bank. And they also called my husband's boss and asked him, is Tim's job good? Because they don't want to give me a mortgage, nor should they, right? If, if, if any of that is unstable. And so if there's a part of you that's not sure if you're going to have a job in 2021 for a period of time, and and I don't mean this to completely derail your plans, but it is something you need to think about. If it is more of an urgency in your career to think about 
switching careers, switching jobs. Uh, maybe that's not the year that you also buy a home. So can I wait? Can I just rent until I figure out and get my ducks in a row? And this is advice I would give, frankly, in any economy, in any life event, pandemic or no pandemic. To continue listening to my interview with Elise, that was episode 1047, 1047 from May 25th. And to learn more about Elise, you can follow her, check her out at thinklink.com. Next, if you ask my guests from earlier this year, Mindy Jensen and Scott Trench, who are the co-hosts of the Bigger Pockets podcast, a lot of you are fans, they might tell you to hold off on buying at this moment. And they think it's because inflation is around the corner and that may not be ideal for buyers in certain markets. Here's our conversation from August, a little bit later in the year from when I spoke to Elise, where they share some of their insights. Scott, I should tell you, he's an avid investor in real estate and Mindy has her license in real estate. So it was really helpful to get their take. You're both very passionate about real estate. You've had each of you uh, individual success investing in real estate. Where are the opportunities right now? And, and how should people be thinking about real estate investment? Again, not to be confused with property buying or primary residence, which is a whole other conversation when it comes to returns. If you are specifically looking for a property that will get you rental income or you can flip, you know, what, what, what are you advising? Scott, do you want to take this? Because I'm sure. actually in a market where I'm a real estate agent and I'm seeing house prices go insane. Yes. People who are not having to move, if they just wish to move, which is a different push, people who are moving because they have to are just moving. And people who aren't having to move will not move. Therefore, they're not listing their house. Therefore, there's a lot less inventory on the market. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people who have to move. So there's more competition for fewer houses. And it's really, really, really driving up prices. So right now in some of these hotter markets, it might not be a, the best time to mm -hmm. be purchasing properties because, you know, like Scott said, Inflation is coming. You can't write, I don't even remember the numbers, $1.2 trillion worth of checks to the American people and not have to pay the piper eventually. That comes in the, in the form of inflation. Yeah, I think I think, you know, in, in recent weeks, you know, I think the Republicans presented like a trillion dollar stimulus and the Democrats want three trillion. So maybe I'm, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but something some, probably something in the ballpark in between those is going to come through. So you got you got a lot of things going on there. If if you buy my thoughts on inflation, right, inflation is a transfer of wealth from society to the owners of real estate. It, in one sense and simple, you know, with, or again, simplifying things in a large way. So, you know, I, look, I, I don't make bets and I don't change my real estate philosophy based on market dynamics, although I enjoy talking about them as you can probably tell. Um, but you know, I, I, if look, I think that over 30 years, real estate in Denver, Colorado, which is where I live is going to be priced at a higher level at the end of that period than it is today. I think rents will increase over that time. So nothing changes about my long-term approach of, in, you know, every other year or so buying property, you know, maintaining it at, at a reasonable operating level, maintaining a responsible amount of debt on those properties and, and cash flowing over the long term. I'm not a flipper. I think a flip in a, for a flipper, the uh, uncertainty of what's going on right now makes that a little bit more difficult in a lot of ways, because, you know, if the government does not act, you wonder if there's going to be a problem in the next three, six, nine months. And I think you're really, I think there's a lot of dependency 
uh, on government action for the stable stabilization of markets. So I think that adds a risk component that is, you know, would give me pause to think if I was flipping or doing a new build. But if I, the owners of property, homeowners and real estate investors, you know, if, if government intervention continues and, you know, there's any inflation at all, that, that tends to benefit the owners of real property, real, you know, homes and, 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 and rental property in the, in the, at least in the near term. So that, that would be, is, is that helpful in answering? Your yes. Question? And, and to Mindy's point, it's a great time to be selling in some markets. I know in our neighborhood, it's just anecdotally hearing about, property down. This street gets 40 bids. It's like a silent auction. You know, uh, people think they're buying a trip to Cancun. It's a house, everybody. Like what, like calm down. I don't understand the exuberance, but I get it. If you were living in a small place with everybody home now under one roof, it's a lot it's a lot on the mental health. So home is not just where the heart is. It's where your mental sanity is. I think that's showing up. Uh, so it's a great time to be a real estate broker. <laughs> it is. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I have a lot of clients. I have one client. We wrote five offers before the sixth one was accepted. And that's on five different properties. And we were outbid every single time. Wow. So to recap, it can be a great time to be a seller. And I have made the case on this podcast that if you're a homeowner right now sitting on a pile of equity and you have goals beyond just having a home with a lot of equity, because there's things you want to do. You want to start a business. You want to retire early. You want to send your kids to college. You don't mind downsizing. There may be something to be said about selling your home right now. Now, don't do it just because I told you to, but hear me out. I'll talk about myself here for a second. We sold our Brooklyn apartment in February. Thank the angels that it happened when it did. We had no idea where the world was going. We closed on our apartment sale in February. We've been living in the apartment for nine years. And there are a lot of reasons why we wanted to move when we moved, right? And I've talked about them on the show. One, we wanted better public schools. Two, we wanted more space. Three, we wanted more of a suburban lifestyle for our family, for our kids, because that's how my husband and I grew up and we really wanted that for our children. But there is a reason that I haven't really shared in its entirety because to me, it just seemed really intuitive. And I probably thought, it was too obvious to share, but I'm going to bring it up because I don't think it's too obvious to share. So here it is. We were living in Brooklyn for nine years. We bought the home in 2011 and over the years it appreciated tremendously because we bought into a market that was still growing at the time to the point where we were really, it was nice to see on paper our net worth that was so much tied to the equity in this property. Our feeling was that Living in New York City, you know, you think always like, oh, prices are never going to fall. They're never really going to even flatten. It's really easy to get comfortable and to assume that your net worth on paper that's so heavily tied to your property equity is actually your net worth. But it's not. It's theoretical, especially if it's. And that was a real moment for us to begin thinking about moving and thinking, okay, are we really being smart about how we're tackling our net worth and how we're leveraging this equity? Because equity is not really anything unless you pull it out and you use it, whether it's through a home equity line of credit, a cash out refi, or a full on sale of your home where you're cashed out. And now you can use that cash in other ways, in multiple ways. And we thought, yeah, we're ready to cash out. It's a little painful and it will be an adjustment, 
but it's going to have great trade-offs. It will mean a different lifestyle. It will mean moving. It will mean some stress, but in the end, a lot more bang for our buck. And what could that equity afford us? Could it afford us something more fulfilling than we had in that moment? The answer was absolutely. We were able to cash out and not put all of that money into our next home, but take some of that money and put it into our next home, which would be bigger and more fulfilling and giving us more of what we needed. But also it helped to fortify our rainy day reserve. You know, as a self-employed person, as an entrepreneur, it was very important to me to have at least a year's worth of savings. So activating the equity, which is essentially what we did, we were able to have more savings. I was able to invest more in the stock market. And so do multiple things as opposed to just looking at the equity balance on paper and feeling good about it. I think that that's important to share because sometimes we're afraid to pull the trigger on our cash whether it's tied up in our home, tied up in savings. And I'm the first to tell you, I like looking at cash. It's hard to be like, okay, I'm going to use this cash now because your balance goes down. But if there is a better life for you waiting on the other side of that, a more secure life, pull the trigger, activate your equity, activate your savings. Don't feel weird about it. It's what it's there for. So that's my little soliloquy. But before wrapping, I want to highlight an episode we did back in January with real estate investor Michelle Bosch, episode 997. She gave amazing advice around real estate investing and specifically investing in land, flipping dirt, as she describes it. Here's her talking about how she got started as well as some of her learnings. I was uh, born in Honduras and um, I was born into, you know, a, a wonderful, you know, what would be called a middle class family. My father uh, was an attorney. Uh, my mother was an elementary school teacher. And uh, at a very young age, you know, my my father passed away. But I think probably a year before passing away, he had made an investment. He had sold some land that he owned, you know, in in a rural parts of the country and invested that money into commercial property in the city. And um, and it that decision of investing really was uh, pivotal, I think, uh, for how, you know, my life journey has turned out in that, you know, that investment produced cash flow, whether he was there or not, he was able to, you know, take care of my mother and I financially, even though he was physically not there, um, you know, and, um, and, and his loss for us was, you know, as big as the sky, but from a financial standpoint, I feel, I feel that, you know, that investment decision that he did, um, really, really helped us out. Um, you know, it afforded a great private education for myself to attend a bilingual school, to learn English, you know, something that, you know, my mother with, you know, a 30 something year old mother with a, an elementary school teacher salary would have not been able to afford. So that that's kind of like the backstory back home. I, I, you know, I come to the U.S. also as a result of, you know, having that you know, financial cushion of being able to afford a university here in the U.S. And so I come here in 1997 um, to college to get a degree in finance. I, you know, I meet my husband there who's also an immigrant. And once we graduated, you know, we did what um, everyone else does. You know, we, we got a job in corporate America. We were earning well, um, but, you know, we, we hated it. We realized that we didn't have the freedom of time the freedom of money, the freedom of purpose. And yes, we were, uh, quote unquote, living the American dream, but we were living paycheck to paycheck, you know, working 60, 70, 80 hour, you know, weeks. And, and so we quickly realized that 
we needed to shift from, you know, being what I call income statement earners, basically exchanging hours for dollars from, from a job to being balance sheet earners. And what I mean by that is basically owning assets or creating an asset-based business that can, you know, that spits out cash flow and that can really pay for your lifestyle and that can give you, you know, that freedom. Um, because, uh, because this, this myth of passive cash flow, it is possible. It is, you know, I experienced it firsthand, you know, from, from someone that made a decision, you know, before they passed away and, um, it cannot get as passive, more passive than that, than, you know, being, being gone, physically gone and still providing and taking care for your family. Um, and so, so yeah, so that's kind of how we, how we started. Yeah. And, and so how you got started was through flipping land, as mm-hmm. I, I've heard you talk about this, like flipping dirt, um, which yeah. is, I think should be the title <laughs> of your book. We'll talk about that later. How did you learn about this? I mean, I know that you had this amazing legacy of your father driving you, perhaps fueling your confidence in knowing yeah. that this is like a risk worth taking, but there's like, I'm sure people are listening and being like, where do you even begin with this? Like, how did you actually do this? And then not only do it once, but do it so many times and successfully. So, so yeah, I had experienced first, you know, firsthand, you know, what passive cash flow was, but that doesn't mean that I entirely own that confidence. You know, I was yesterday standing on, on the, sh- you know, on the shoulders of, of, of his confidence and making that investment, but I kind of had to figure that out for myself. And when we started looking at real estate, um, it was daunting. There's so many, you know, you can be rehabbing, you can doing, you can be doing fix and flips. You can be doing, you know, long-term holds, you can be doing multi family, you could be doing, you know, uh, note investing. There's so many ways to kind of like skin the cat when it comes to real estate. And a lot of those for us, uh, to be frank for Anoush, because we were both not from here, um, they seem complicated for us. You know, uh, we didn't have any credit. It's not that we had bad credit, but because we were fresh in the country, we just didn't have any, um, you know, we had no idea how stuff was built here. So trying to go and buy a home, repair it, and then flip, flip it again was uh, a daunting task for us. We didn't know how to estimate repairs, anything about roofs, about foundations, about, you know, uh, mortgages, dealing with tenants, all of that seemed, um, a lot for us. And we kind of stumbled into this asset class of land uh, because I found out here in the U.S. that there is something called tax lien and tax deed auctions. And that means that sometimes when people don't pay their property taxes um, over a course of years, you know, that property can go to an auction. So uh, that was a concept that was so foreign from, you know, for me that you're going to lose your property over property taxes that I couldn't, I couldn't fathom. I'm like, we, I got to go check it out. Uh, very quickly, I realized there that a lot of the properties that were coming up for auction were actually pieces of land. And I'm like, well, if people are letting go of their properties at auction, because, you know, the owners weren't there to really, you know, bid on those properties or anything. Um, other investors were there. And, um, and I'm like, maybe we can start contacting, you know, these owners way in advance um, and, and see if they would want to directly sell the property to us way before, you know, they go to auction. And, and through a lot of trial and error over a course of, you know, a few years, we developed a methodology where we, you know, would send direct mail to, you know, 
list of property owners of vacant land. And to this day, we're able to acquire land for anywhere between five to 25 cents on the dollar and then sell it at 60 or 80% of market value. And, and we sell it in two ways. We sell it either for cash, you know, or we can sell it by somebody giving us a down payment and then making payments over the course of the next five, 10, 15 years. And so that's where for us, we were able to start kind of like replicating what my experience had been back home of passive cash flow uh, by, by basically offering and extending seller financing to people where if I was selling a property for say $20,000, they would give me a down payment of $2,000 and then make monthly payments of 300, you know, 400, 500. And, um, you know, since 2003 now for almost 18 years, we flipped over 4,000 pieces of property. We, um, you know, we were able to create about $70,000 of passive ca cash flow just from the land and, um, and over, you know, $12 million in notes just, just on land. And, and that kind of was like the cornerstone for us to really kind of like gain, um, gain the confidence, you know, the courage, the capability, the cash flow to then start moving to other asset classes like single family homes like we did back in 2009 and eventually in 2016 we wanted to turbocharge the passive cash flow and started investing like you mentioned earlier in large multifamily like apartment buildings of 100 plus units and so on but it's it it was a result of of um of we realizing that a lot of the other asset classes out there were complicated. We didn't have the capability, the conf, you know, the confidence and the skills. So we needed to really start with with a class where we could really wrap our head around it, our arms around it, really master, focus, you know, and and rinse and repeat one one deal, two deals, three deals, four deals, five deals, and that that repetition eventually, you know, creates mastery. And when with mastery, in my opinion, you know, that land business became almost like a PhD in making money. Today, Michelle is the co-founder and CFO of Orbit Investments. She's also a full-time real estate investor. Later in our conversation, Michelle talks about her buying and selling strategy and how you and I can find the time and capacity to make similar deals. To hear all of it, check out episode 997. It aired in January. Today, Michelle and her husband have purchased and sold several thousand pieces of real estate and they've built the third largest land investment and auction company in the country. Check out Michelle Bosch, that's B-O-S-C-H dot com. Coming up on Friday, a replay of the top, tippity top, Ask Farnoosh episode of 2020. I can't wait to share this again. Thanks for tuning in. I hope your day is so money. And Merry Christmas if you celebrate Christmas. <laughs> 